Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibriglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Lawrence Chin. Dr. Chin has been Dean of the College of Medicine at SUNY Upstate Medical University since January 2020. He oversees 500 faculty members and educates more than 700 students, as well as oversees a biomedical research program focused on some of the most pressing health issues of our time. Upstate University Hospital has the only level one trauma center and children's hospital in the region. Dr. Chin himself specializes in neurosurgery and has been with Upstate since 2011. And before this interview got started, we shared the connection about Dr. Daniele Regamonti, a fellow neurosurgeon who was one of my mentors at Hopkins and one of Dr. Chin's colleagues at University of Maryland. So Dr. Chin, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you very much, Shiv. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So our first value at Osmosis is to start with the heart, meaning we want to express caring. And so this is a very stressful time for all of us between COVID, racial injustice, and many other macro trends. How are you doing? How are things holding up on your side? You know, we're doing okay. I think that uh, in central New York, we were very fortunate to really be spared the worst of the virus. And so while we were affected, the cases never uh, rose to a, a level that became a problem. Hospital was fully prepared. We shut the medical school down for three months. We closed the hospital essentially to all elective care for three months. And so it was very quiet here. Um, I'd come into work in my office and the entire place was empty. But, you know, we've since reopened and all the students are back. The hospital is back running at full capacity. We were upset by the racial unrest, just like the rest of the country. We had demonstrations in the city. Um, Syracuse is an area where there is quite extreme poverty. And it is, it is a very real pressing social issue for us here. And so um, that's been something that we've really tackled head on as well. Um, because, you know, our students, our faculty were hurting because of the injustices. So two big hits, but we are learning to um, adjust, adapt, and uh, grow stronger moving forward. Well, that's great to hear. And we're definitely going to dive deeper into how your university and hospital have adjusted to COVID as well as the racial disparities. But before we dive fully into that, I'm curious to learn a bit more about you. So we speak obviously with a lot of deans and leaders at health systems and medical and other schools uh, at Osmosis. Um, I think you're the first neurosurgeon I've met who's taken up a leadership <laughs> role. I don't know how you have time for all of it. Do you mind uh, telling us a bit more about how you got into medicine, chose neurosurgery specifically, and then wound up being the dean? Yeah, thanks. You know, I got into medicine never really intending to be anything more than a practicing neurosurgeon. Uh, I was fortunate to train at, uh, at USC LA County Hospital and my chair, Dr. Marty Weiss, who's really my mentor and the most influential person for me uh, as a physician and subsequently as a physician leader, because he was a person of just the highest integrity and uh, someone that I've respected, looked up to as a resident and as a faculty and, and so on. So I really came from a, a training program where your 
personal integrity, honesty, um, the drive to learn and to accept only excellence, but understand that you always need to be getting better and that when you make mistakes, you learn from them and you move forward. And so I was at the University of Maryland where I built a brain tumor program. And it was at Maryland that I really kind of got more into leadership. And I think it's one of those questions, you know, how do you get into leadership? Are you a born leader or do you learn it? And I'm a firm believer that it is a skill like any other skill that you learn. I don't think anybody is a born leader or a natural leader. It is through hard work and making mistakes and learning from them. But I think you have to make a conscious decision at some point that I, I want to get more into some of the administrative parts. So uh, I was recruited to be chair of neurosurgery at Boston University. We built a program there. And then in 2011, I was fortunate enough to be recruited to come to Upstate. And at Upstate, I really got much more involved into the medical student side of things. So I was chair of neurosurgery and I had a, a clinical practice but I was involved with um, medical student teaching, but maybe more actually on the advising and mentoring side. And so one of the things that I started here with the Dean of Students, Julie White, was our learning communities, which was our advising system. And um, we have all the students in different communities and they have some classes together, but you know, social events, it's a way of getting the faculty and the students together in more casual uh, settings and to really build more of a community. And so it was just through just more and more interactions with students that really got me more interested on this administrative side. I also was the head of our practice plan. So I kind of a dual interest in both practice management and education. And then, you know, I never imagined I would be a dean, but the uh, interim president needed to find a, a, a dean to take over. And so named me interim dean. And then shortly thereafter, I was named the permanent dean. So it's been, you know, a pretty wild ride and never expected to be here, but grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, interesting timing, becoming Dean right before everything hit. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear, well, before we go into kind of how this year has kind of played out for you in the, the school, um, I will make a side note that apart from Dr. Rigamonti, who we spoke about, your know, neurosurgery is actually what got me interested in med school as a whole, and then ultimately led to me founding Osmosis. I grew up in South Africa and used to shout at my dad at the general hospital he worked at as a general internist and uh, met a child with hydrocephalus and was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of shocked at how we were about the same age and he, his head was, you know, three times as big as mine. Um, right. So I got really interested in that. And then mentors like Dr. Rigamonti and then where I grew up in Florida, Dr. Tom Payne, both neurosurgeons, you know, clearly paved a good path for me to go in there. So I always love connecting with neurosurgeons like yourself, particularly those interested in mentorship and education. So going back to your role as Dean, as of this year, you hit in January and then in March, boom, COVID. I'd love to hear how you've adjusted since, like what were some of the things that went through your mind about what you had to take action to do to, to get through this year? Well, you know, the last meeting that I was at where there are actually people 
was in fact the uh, the double AMC. We call it the Dean Boot Camp. But every year, the double AMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges, has a course where all of the new deans and interim deans gather, and it's about you know 25 each year, and you learn different things. You have speakers, and it was at the end of January, and we were just starting to learn about COVID. And really for the month of February, we kind of acted like things would be okay. And I remember a medical student coming by to my open office hours, very concerned about COVID and was telling me things about are not. And you know that this virus is something completely new and different and that this was going to be not only a pandemic, but it was going to be a black swan event and like completely change the world. And I remember even thinking, oh, you know, I was a little skeptical. And in full disclosure, I had no idea what our not was. You know, I, I clearly had never learned it. So it was like all of these things are not PPE. You know, I had never really thought about PPE. I mean, you know, we wear the stuff in the OR, but, and so I really feel like we were a little bit stumbling through the, the dark and, and maybe not sure of what we were doing. And we did things kind of in a stepwise tentative fashion. And I remember, you know, we first we canceled the pre-match day dinner and then we canceled match day. And then beginning of March, it was clear we had to shut everything down. And so we had about basically a one week window of we know we're going to shut down. We have to get everybody ready for online learning. And I have to say, it was a tremendous job of not only the students, but the faculty to adjust to online learning. And we could not have done it without our experience with online resources. And so the thing that was really positive about it was that not only did we learn that we could do it and we could deliver the content online, it forced us to look at what was really critical about medical education. Is it having hour-long lectures that none of the students attend? Is it six weeks of a clinical rotation where the students are just tagging along and essentially shadowing someone? Or are there things that can be delivered more effectively, more efficiently. And we had to really distill because we took the, the students off the clinical rotations. We had to figure out, okay, so there is no longer this 10 week surgery block and the medicine block, the students got in half of their rotation. The other half is gone. So how are we gonna make that up? And, you know, what were the essential in-person clinical pieces that were needed? You know, and we figured it out. Our curriculum dean, uh, Leanne Lesperance, was amazing. Our entire curriculum group, the student affairs people, it all came together. And I think what we saw with the students was they still did fine on their exams. They did pretty much as well as they always do. And so it really forced us to evaluate critically what we were doing from an educational perspective. The other part that maybe was fortuitous is we had just started 
a curriculum planning process and we're revamping our curriculum. We're setting the framework to be able to put in a, a three-year curriculum, things like that, you know, more innovative ways of delivering content, more small group discussion, more active learning. And the news of step one going pass fail, that's a minor shock, but you know, compared to the other two events at, of this year. But that really allowed us to think a little bit differently about how we were redesigning the curriculum too. Maybe less step one focus, maybe now we have to pay attention to step two more, but also freed us to be able to think about, well, what does the curriculum really, what should it be for a medical student? Yeah, exactly. We had a previous guest on Raise Lion was Dr. Michael Gustavuson, who's president of UMass Memorial Medical Center. And he said mm -hmm. uh, at UMass around March, half the medical, fourth year medical students, they graduated early and then half of them decided to, to become like kind of super interns and actually contribute to the COVID response. But also, he, he also mentioned, apart from kind of accelerated learning and practice, the fact that up until that point earlier this year, they had only done a couple of thousand telemedical visits. But then mm -hmm. uh, since March, they've done over 150,000. So two orders of magnitude more than they'd done before. And I'm curious, you know, people are talking about telehealth clerkships. We just had Joe Kavidar, the head of the American Telemedicine Association, on the podcast as well. What are your thoughts on the lasting changes to the medical curriculum at SUNY and, and other places that, that we should be aware of? Well, telehealth is absolutely something that we anticipate is going to be uh, part of the healthcare future. We also went for several months exclusively to telehealth, except for only you know, the critical patients that needed to be seen in person. You know, we definitely adapted to it. And I still see patients, um, I'm still operating, not like I was before I became dean, but I have a half a day of clinic a week, and I probably do one or two cases a week. And I think my experience is similar to most other doctors and our patients, which is, I love telehealth. It was good for our patients. We have a lot of patients who travel several hours to come to Syracuse. Uh, Central New York extends from the Pennsylvania border up to the Canadian border. And it's not unusual to have patients that are driving hours to come for a 15-minute follow-up visit. And that's just something that we need to look at. And why are we doing this to our patients? Obviously, you can't do a physical exam through telehealth. But you can actually tell a lot about someone's physical condition still through a video exam. And for visits where really you're looking at an x-ray and asking a patient how they're doing, that doesn't need to be in person. And so the patients were happy. They were satisfied. The physicians were happy. They could be efficient. Our no-show rate for visits went down because now... You know, there's really no reason why a patient wouldn't show up. So it was actually a nice byproduct. And now moving forward, I think that we've increased our technical capabilities of being able to do telehealth. I sincerely hope that the insurance companies, the payers recognize the value of telehealth, its value for patients, and that we will continue to do it. 
Now, from an education standpoint, we have to prepare our students for this future. And so right now, the students on their clinical rotations, uh, a lot of their patient interactions, they are learning telehealth on the clinical rotations. They're doing telehealth visits. In the preclinical curriculum, our standardized patients are not in person. So the standardized exams that our students are doing are essentially it's telehealth. I would like to explore and we're looking at how we can use our simulation center. So uh, last year we opened up our new sim center with state-of-the-art mannequins and you know we got a simulated OR and all sorts of things. But can we combine simulated patients with a patient that, you know, a standardized patient that you meet through a video and be able to do both to teach clinical skills. So it's an important thing. It's the future and educationally, we have to adapt to it. Totally. And speaking of educational adaptations, even before students kind of get in or or enroll at SUNY, there's been a lot of talk, at least for colleges that there's this is the year of the gap year right people don't want to go to school uh, you know a lot of people are deferring from first year of college because they don't want to go to a zoom university i'm curious has this come into play with any of your graduate programs at suny not so much not so much for the medical school we committed very early on and we we let all of the students that we had accepted that coming in the fall it was going to be in part in person and that it was going to be a hybrid curriculum. It wasn't going to be all in person for sure. And it was an opportunity, especially for those big lectures, the big lecture halls that, you know, the students just weren't coming to those things we were going to get rid of. But some of the the small group discussions that I think, especially for case-based learning, where we felt that it was important to have the students and their preceptor together, the anatomy, you know, we felt it was important not to learn virtual anatomy, but we still wanted to do anatomy in person, smaller groups, you know, PPE, physically distanced, but that was going to be in person. And physical diagnosis, we felt that that still had to be in person. So it's less, but you know, I feel like one of the important things of, of learning to be a doctor is interacting with people. You can't learn to be a doctor virtually because it is a social job. It is a job where you have to interact with people. You have to be able to read people. You have to understand the nuances of communication. All of those things you develop by being around other people. And so it didn't affect us. You know, I think that um, there are more students deferring this year, but we've put together a very aggressive plan in terms of recommending student testing, uh, making sure we've got a plan for how do we deal with an outbreak if something happens. It was one of the really important things that Upstate did in being part of the giving advice to SUNY as a university system, um, some of our experts were really integral in helping SUNY 
figure out how they could reopen safely and give them guidance on that. And I think our experts were really instrumental in, in having that happen. That's great to hear. And, and on your point about needing to go in person and actually see patients and diagnose them, touch them, et cetera, uh, that reminds me of that famous William Osler quote, uh, one of the four founding fathers of, of Hopkins said, he who studies medicine without books sails an uncharted sea, but he who studies medicine without patients does not go to sea at all. So yeah. it sounds obviously that you guys wanted your students to come to sea and, and actually experience it. I'm curious, since we're running out of time, what advice would you give to people who are considering careers in healthcare now, as far as the opportunities and challenges ahead in this post-COVID or current COVID, and then hopefully a post-COVID world? Well, I would say that if you're considering a career in the health professions, whether it's physician, nurse, therapist, technician, this is, I think, one of the best times to be in the healthcare field. I think we're, we're realizing that healthcare is a universal right, and it's something that our people deserve, and they deserve the best. And in the time of a pandemic, you realize how important these people are. And so it is something that I think it brings out the best in us when we're working with other people. And so I, I really feel like we're getting uh, the best and the brightest in our field. It's a time of tremendous scientific breakthroughs. The research and the new treatments is tremendous. The application of artificial intelligence and the use of data and data science in guiding safer care, more quality, you know, higher quality care, that's leading to a, a revolution. Uh, so I really feel like physicians, nurses uh, in the healthcare field, we have to start thinking of ourselves as being leaders, not only in our own fields, but really as in society in general. And we can set an example of caring and empathy and compassion. And that's such an important message. And so I really, I strongly encourage people that are interested, please think about a healthcare career. You can impact the lives of so many people in a positive way. And I think it's a wonderful time. It, for me, it's been very gratifying working with the students and the faculty at Upstate. It's been very personally fulfilling. And um, I really enjoyed my, my job. That's really great to hear. I mean, despite all the challenges, I think society has recognized now the, the really important role that healthcare professionals are playing from the EMTs and sonographers to the neurosurgeons like yourself. Um, Dr. Chen, I know we're out of time, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, given you know how busy you are, how many hats you wear. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure getting to meet you. And uh, I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing, improving medical education and look forward to educating our, our future generations of physicians. Totally. We really appreciate the partnership with you and your team at, at SUNY Upstate. So with that, I'm Shiv Aglani. Thank you for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>